Does anybody in here like birthdays? No. Yes. There is a dividing line between those who look forward to their birthdays and go crazy at their birthdays and those who don't. And from experience, I say that's like 31, 32, because I'm there, uh, and I'm not looking forward to next year's 33. That's the year Jesus was crucified, you know, so I'm hoping that my year turns out better than his. Um, we'll, we'll see. The jury is out. But in any case, I know that my kids are already counting down the days till their birthday in December and in February, and we're all getting excited about Jesus' birthday. So birthdays are kind of a big deal. And if I look back on the history of my life, all the major monumental birthdays, the, the big events in my life, my 16th birthday was probably up there. And it wasn't because I got my license. You know, I did that later. I think I was like almost 17 when I finally got my license. But um, for my 16th birthday, all I wanted was for my parents to take my great-grandfather's 1939 Martin D18 acoustic guitar and have new strings put on it because I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. So they did. They took it down to the music store on Hillcrest Avenue in Mobile, Alabama, and the guy offered them $20,000 on the spot for the guitar. Isn't that crazy? It's like the best birthday present anybody's ever given me. You know, a $20,000 guitar. It's a guitar I play sometimes when I've gotten the privilege to lead worship. It was my papa's guitar, and he was a pastor. And the church that he pastored in 1939 gave him that guitar. And I'm sure he felt about them like I feel about you. Man, I thank my God every time I think about you. You are my joy and crown of boasting. But I got that 1939 Martin D18, and I wasn't walking with the Lord at the time. So the first songs I learned were the classics of the 1960s. Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel. And one of the first songs I learned to play, a song Bob Dylan wrote in 1963, it was published in 1965, the times they are a-changing. Come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. And if your life to use worth saving, you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. The times they are a-changing. You know, I, I did the research on it this week. At the time, as a 16, 17-year-old kid, I thought I was some kind of revolutionary. And I was going to lead pro a great protest movement, protesting the, the ills of Baker High School you know, um, I didn't do that, but I still sang those songs, and uh, that guitar got me through. But in 1963, Bob Dylan set out to write an anthem that was supposed to capture the spirit of change boiling around in the early 60s. Uh, he said he, he wrote it in 1963 and recorded it, and a week later, President Kennedy was assassinated. And he said he got up on stage the next night to lead his concert and had planned to start this concert off with the times they are a change. And he said he got up there and sang the song and people were clapping. And he thought to himself, what am I even doing? What are they clapping about? What is this song about? He said, I thought the whole thing was insane. Now he set out to write a song capturing the desire for change in the 60s. And whether he knew it or not, he got it. The times they were a change in the 60s changed our world. And, and really, just today, in 2021, we're really experiencing the full-blown effects of the consistent application of some of the principles that took root in the 1960s. So the times, they were changing. I mean, like, overnight, the world changed. 
And I don't have to convince some of y'all of that. Y'all were there in the 60s. You saw it all happen. But some of us weren't. And instead, what we got to live through was the year of our Lord, 2020. And you start to see things online about viruses and China getting locked down. And I remember having the conversation with my wife like, oh, they'll never do that here. And then one day, you realize like, hey, it is here. And the world changed again. Like overnight, the world we live in today is not the same world we lived in two years ago. Can I get an amen? amen. It's a different place. It's, it's like, might as well put me on one of Elon Musk's rockets and take me to Mars. That's what I feel like. Okay, that's where I am. And most of the time, when we think about change as people, when we think about change as church, as families, we get an uneasy feeling, don't we? The ground beneath our feet starts to shake. We start to see, well, if this happens the way I think it might, man, what's that going to mean for my life? But can I tell you, Jesus, when he brings change, always brings us to a better place than we were before. Like, things are changing everywhere you look. We live in a different world. Our church is different today than it was two years ago. Everything you look at is different. But Jesus is still the same. And he still works the way he has always worked. And this morning, as we dig into the passage we just read, I want you to know that Jesus fundamentally changes. He fundamentally changes the way people know and worship God. Jesus fundamentally changes the way people know and worship God. Now, that's not surprising to you. We've been, this I said is the 10th sermon, we've been in Mark for a little while, and you've gotten a taste of who Jesus is. Mark reveals him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the King who comes, exerting his authority over all things, right? Everywhere he goes, he is being the King, and he's planting his flag behind enemy lines, right? He exerts his authority in his teaching, goes into the synagogue in Capernaum. The people are amazed. They say, we've never heard teaching like this before. Where did this man come from? He exerts his authority over unclean spirits and demons, casting them out. Who is this that even the unclean spirits obey him? He exerts his authority over disease, just touching people and making them well. A couple weeks ago, we saw his authority to forgive sins. And as he does this and brings his kingdom, change starts to happen. Of course, it's good change for some people. Their mother-in-law gets healed. Their nephew gets a demon cast out of him. Their paralytic friend gets his sins forgiven and the use of his legs back. And so the crowds everywhere flock to him, praising him, following him, pressing into him, and asking him to heal them. But then on the other hand, there are these religious folks who start to see the changes Jesus is making, and controversy begins. And actually, deep-rooted controversy. First, it's only on the periphery. And then it's face-to-face, -face, like last week. Why is your teacher eating with these tax collectors and sinners? And you say, well, it's actually, I'm not going to apologize for that. In fact, I'm going to boast in it. That's what my God sent me to do, to eat with these kind of people and to save them. And today, this is the, the third episode of controversy. It's, it's the centerpiece. There are five total controversial episodes that happen in Mark 2 and 3. We're going to see the next two in the next two weeks, and they're both around the issues of Sabbath. But today's the centerpiece, and it really drives home the point that Jesus is changing things because he takes aim at one of their most cherished 
symbols and markers of personal piety. The way they relate to their God. It's the issue of fasting. And it's a spiritual practice, I think, if we're going to admit that's foreign to most of us here today. All right, how many of y'all were fasting this week? Me neither, okay? No harm, no foul. I wasn't. I ate taco ring yesterday, which is opposite of fasting. It's good, but anyway, fasting is the voluntary abstinence of food for a spiritual purpose. We're not talking about intermittent fasting, you know, 16 off, 8 on because you're trying to lose weight. We're talking about the fasting that your doctor says, well, you got a procedure tomorrow. I need you to hold off on the taco ring for 24 hours, 12 hours before. We're not talking about that. That's fasting in a sense. But biblically speaking, fasting is the willing abstinence of food for a spiritual purpose. There's a spiritual reason that you would hold off on eating. And if you start looking in the Bible, well, what might that motivation be? You'd find a bunch. You'd find, well, first off, God straight up commands fasting in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. He called all his people together and he said, I want you to afflict yourself. Okay, you look this up. Leviticus 16, 29. Afflict yourself. And my Bible has a helpful footnote clarifying what kind of affliction he's talking about. It says, or in other words, fasting. The Day of Atonement was the one day of the year when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the people's sins and spread the offering of blood of a goat on the mercy seat, thereby expiating, that's taking away their guilt, and offering for them propitiation, somebody to suffer in their place. And so as God's people prepared themselves to receive the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, they humbled themselves and afflicted themselves through fasting. So what spiritual motivation might these Pharisees and John's disciples have been about? Well, maybe it was the command of God. But you also see in the Old Testament that fasting was often pursued as a spontaneous expression of sorrow and grief. A spontaneous expression of sorrow and grief. For example, Judges 20, 26 is crazy. It's a civil war among the people of Israel. Now, on the one hand, you have the tribe of Benjamin. And on the other, you have Aaron, the high priest's grandson, Phinehas, leading an army of zealots to make war against the Benjaminites. And over the course of two days, 40,000 men of Israel are killed in battle against their brothers from the tribe of Benjamin. And so what do they do but go back to their camp, tear their clothes, and fast before the Lord, weeping and wailing that such a thing had happened in Israel. Fasting was their spontaneous expression of sorrow and grief. Uh, it also happens in 1 Samuel 31, after the first king of Israel, Saul, is killed. David and all his men fast and weep and wail that such a thing would happen to Saul. It also happens in Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah gets word that the people of Israel have returned to Jerusalem, but the walls are torn down and the city lies in ruins. When he hears it, his stomach turns. He's overwhelmed with sorrow and grief that his home would be like that. And he can't bring himself to eat. He has to fast out of sorrow and grief. You also see in the Old Testament, fasting expressed as an act of humility and repentance. As in 1 Samuel 7 and Ezra 9, when the people of Israel are brought back and they reconstruct a temple, which is a sad excuse for the temple that they had had before, but they start to examine themselves, and I'm probably going to preach two sermons overviewing the book of Ezra um, on November 21st and 28th, so make plans to be here because I want to dig into this Ezra chapter 9 stuff. But they look at all that God has done 
And then they turn the mirror in on themselves and they say, we are a broken and sinful people. And they repent before him and fast. And then you see it in Jonah 3, when Jonah shows up in Nineveh and proclaiming that God's judgment's coming. The word gets all the way to the king of Nineveh and he calls for a fast. Everybody, not just food. Abstinence from food is one thing. He calls for an absolute fast. Abstinence from food and water that maybe God would see their humility and repentance and relent from the disaster that he had promised. After the exile, fasting takes root in Israel, not just as a commandment of God or a spontaneous expression of repentance, humility, sorrow, and grief, but to commemorate great tragedies in the history of God's people. The book of Zechariah talks about, in Zechariah 8, 19, four fasts that were observed every year. And the rabbis tell us that each one of those commemorated tragedies in the history of God's people. They were great days of sorrow and repentance for what had happened to their people, to remember the great things they had suffered together. And so if you're trying to find the reasoning behind the fasting we see in Mark chapter 2, you could look at one of those, and they would all be useful, and maybe they might prompt your own season of fasting in your life. But these weren't the motivations driving the Pharisees and the disciples of John. Both John the Baptist and the movement known as the Pharisees, they were what scholars call restoration movements. And they were rooted in a belief that someday, and they were hoping and praying and fasting, that someday soon, God was going to return to his people, fulfill his promises, and establish his kingdom on earth. So they were training themselves. Everything they did was rooted in this desire for God to make Israel great again. I think that would have been the first century slogan, you know. Um, that would have been the goal. And the Pharisees did that in different ways. I told you last week, the Pharisees believed that God had waited on fulfilling his promises because the people weren't taking him seriously. That he'd given them all these commands and they had neglected every one of them. So the Pharisees were out there minding and calling people to get serious about God again to take his commandments seriously, to start obeying. And when they finally obeyed, maybe then God would restore the fortunes of Israel. Because of that, they didn't just prioritize obedience to God's law, but I told you, they set up these fences so that people didn't even get close to disobeying God. But they had these extra traditions that they created. And one of those, apparently, was a great commitment to fasting. Jesus talks about it in Luke 18, verse 12, when he's telling a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he starts to relate the way the Pharisee might talk about himself. And in Luke 18, 12, the Pharisee says, he's, you know, he's getting a litany of reasons that God should hear his prayer. And he says, and I fast twice a week. I fast twice a week. That's what they did. The Pharisees fasted on Mondays and on Thursdays every week. Of course, they did this in part because if you roll up in a place and start letting people know that you're the type of person that fasts twice a week, not just one time, but you fast two days a week, people start to get impressed and say, hey, maybe someday I'll get to the level of that guy. But I think, like I told you, I want to be fair to them. And so I think maybe deep in their heart, they thought that if they took God that seriously, if they went so far as to voluntarily abstain from food twice a week, then maybe he would listen to their prayers. I mean, after all, look at these dedicated people who love me so much and are so committed to my laws and my commandments. Man, what kind of God would I be if I didn't hear their prayer and restore the fortunes of Israel? 
So the Pharisees are the type of people who fasted because they hoped that by their fasting, God would hear their prayers and he would be faithful to his promise and he would restore the fortunes of Israel. On the other hand, John's disciples, I think, are totally different. Now, uh, Mark doesn't give us all the details about their fasting and history doesn't record any type of thing like the Pharisees fasted on Monday and Thursdays and John's guys had it on Tuesday and Friday. It doesn't tell you anything like that. We don't know any details about the way that John's disciples fasted. But we can say a few things. For example, if you're here when we've kicked off this series, we, we look deeply at John. And Mark tells us that John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was his message. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. John's whole MO was repentance. And John didn't have too close of relationships with the Pharisees. In fact, when the Pharisees came to be baptized by John, he said, who told you brood of vipers about the judgment that was coming? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. After all, it's not just those who are physical descendants of Abraham's who are his children. But God's laid the axe of the root, and he's about to cut down every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, and he's going to throw it in the fire. I mean, the Pharisees were the most righteous people in all of Israel, and John tells them they're a bunch of dead bones. Okay, so I, I don't think he's fasting for the same reason as the Pharisees. If the Pharisees thought that God would listen to their prayers because of how committed and devoted and obedient they were to him, I think John's disciples fasted for a different reason. They knew they couldn't obey God or prove faithful to his law. They knew that if God answering his, their prayers and fulfilling his promises was dependent on their righteousness, they were doomed. So they fasted as a deep expression of their humility saying to God, Lord, we are so hungry for you to work in our world. We can't do a single thing if you don't move. I think that's what John's disciples fasted for. The Pharisees thought maybe in their fasting God would see them and then act because they were so obedient and righteous. And John's disciples said, we're doomed without you, Lord. We're humbly repenting and asking you to act just on your mercy alone. So here they are, fasting and hoping for God's coming kingdom. And then they hear Jesus. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Come preaching the gospel. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And these guys, rooted in a restoration movement, who want more than anything in the world. I mean, you think about the thing you want most for your birthday. A guitar. You know, I don't know. A Nintendo Switch. What do kids want these days? I don't know. My kids need to let me know. And kids, I give you permission to let your parents know. But I know exactly what the Pharisees and John wanted. They wanted to see the kingdom of God. And here was a man who was pronouncing the kingdom of God was near, and he was showing signs that maybe he knew something they didn't know. They saw his authority being exerted in his teaching, in his miracles, in his healings. They thought, maybe this guy knows what's up. And then they look at him and his disciples, and they notice they don't fast. And anybody belonging to a restoration movement knows that fasting is one of the foundational pieces of the way we look for God's return. And so they come to Jesus and they ask him, we fast, but your guys don't fast. Why? And as a preacher, I kind of wish he would have just told him why instead of talking parables. But he didn't do that. He talked in parables and he asked them a question. And this is the first parable that we come across 
in Mark's gospel. Next spring, we're going to look at the parables in detail. They're a key feature of the way Jesus taught. He, he did it for a reason. He spoke in parables so that he would keep people on the outside of his circle and invite certain people on the inside of his circle. To understand parables, you have to think. Not many people want to do that. You have to contemplate and pray. And you have to examine yourself. And so that's what Jesus did. He spoke to him in a parable. And he said, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. While the bridegroom's with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Parables invite people to consider spiritual truths by thinking about something that's normal, and just a part of everyday life. Jesus points here to weddings. Now, weddings are awesome. That guitar that my parents got me on my 16th birthday is the reason I'm married to the woman I'm married to today. I was writing poems and got an extra credit project in my 11th grade English class, and so I wrote a poem called Test Drive in the key of E. Put it to, to a music and took it in and sang the song, and I was singing it about her. And she knew it, and everybody else knew it, but to that point, I was nerdy, and still am. She was popular, but man, that guitar helped me cross that divide from nerd to, man, I locked that thing up and put a ring on it. You know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> Weddings are joyful occasions. Weddings are awesome. They are so good. Weddings are a time of feasting and dancing and laughing and celebration. After all this time, finally God has brought you together. Isn't this a great thing? Yeah, it is. You can't go to a wedding and sit back and cry and be sad. You know, that's not the way weddings are supposed to work. We know this. We know this. And so Jesus asked him to consider how mismatched it would be if on the day of the wedding, the groom standing up there on the stage, waiting for the bride to enter in from the back, and he looks over to see his groomsmen are nowhere to be found. Instead, they're sitting in the back with sunken faces, fasting. That's totally mismatched. That's not the way things are supposed to work. Groomsmen are there for the groom. They're there to celebrate what God is doing. They're there to make sure the party goes on, even if he gets tied up and smashing cake into his bride's face. They're the guys who hold the ring. They are essential to the party that's about to happen. How ridiculous would it be if they were missing and fasting? It doesn't fit. In the same way, Jesus says that his presence with his disciples means that their fasting would be just as inappropriate. See, Jesus knew that fasting makes sense. In a world marked by death, sin, and alienation from God. Commentator Robert Stein says, it doesn't only make sense, those things require fasting. But Jesus also knew that he'd come to change all that. To take the brokenness of the world and usher in a totally new set of circumstances. And he, he was bringing a kingdom with him. He was changing everything. There's no use in fasting because in Jesus, all their longings were fulfilled and all their sorrow was turned to joy made no sense to go on fasting. The reason you'd fast is because you were sorrowful and hoping for God to restore things. And here's Jesus bringing joy 
and ushering in his kingdom. No, fasting makes no sense. And as if to drive the point home and to make the sermon even more difficult to convey, Jesus goes on and adds two additional parables. The parable of the torn garment and the worn out wineskins. Let's read that again, Mark, 21, Mark 2, 21 and 22. He just goes right into it. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. Now, these are familiar to you. I hope you, I hope you know that phrase, new wine for new wine skins. I hope that rings a bell for you. It is what some people think a slogan that characterizes Jesus' ministry, talking about the change he wants to bring. See, both these parables work together. There's some commonality. We're going to dig into them in a second. But they both help us see the fundamental changes that Jesus wants to make in the way people, and they, let's get out of the abstract, the way he wants us to relate to God. They're changes that extend beyond fasting. And whether it's okay or not to eat with tax collectors and sinners, or whether it's all right to pick grain on the Sabbath or to heal a man on the Sabbath, those are issues that Jesus' opponents are totally captivated by and obsessed over. The fasting thing is what causes the controversy, but the fasting thing is just an application of a bigger principle that Jesus wants us to see. Fasting is not the issue. The issue is what he's doing behind the scenes that renders fasting inappropriate and unseemly. Changes that get to the very heart of what God is trying to accomplish in Jesus. And so I want to take these two together and kind of open them up side by side to understand it. Now both of these parables focus on the collision of two things. One is old, used up, and worn out. I'm almost 33 and I'm getting there. Old, worn out, and used up, okay? So I know some of you know what that's all about. So there's something in these parables that's old, used up, and worn out. And then there's something new. And when those two things come together, there's a violent collision that can lead to disaster. Right? In the first one, verse 21, the old thing is a worn out garment. You know, the, the, your favorite t-shirt that you like to put on to pull your team through. It's your lucky t-shirt. And it starts to get holes in it, but you're not giving that thing up because it's got your team into the World Series. I don't have one of those, but I need one. The shirt I was wearing last night helped the Braves make it to the first World Series since 1999. So I'm praising God for it. There's something old, worn out, and used up. The old garment. And the problem with those things is they got a tear in them. And so any responsible owner of a used up garment wants to make it last, and so they sew a patch on it to cover up the hole and give it some new life. That's the new thing, the unshrunk fabric. The problem is that while you'd think you'd have a perfect solution to the problem of your worn out shirt, you can actually make matters worse. Because if you take a piece of fabric that's already been shrunk and stretched and worn out and put onto it something that hasn't, as soon as you start to wear it and run it through the wash, it'll shrink up and it will cause a worse tear than before. Jesus says the, old, the new will pull away from the old and a worse tear will result. 
Right? So the old garment, the new fabric, the violent collision, the new pulls away from the old, and a worse tear results. Verse 22 moves on from the image of an old garment to used up wineskins. You may not be as familiar with that. The process for winemaking in the first century involved a treading out of grapes in a wine press. And for the first stage of fermentation, the unfermented juice was put into wineskins. And over the course of a few days to a few weeks, it lets off gas as the yeast in the grapes feed on the sugar in the juice, causing the alcohol process to happen. And as that happens, those yeasts let off gas. And that gas causes the sealed up wineskin to expand. And as it expands, it reaches a point where it can expand no more. It grows with the off-gassing of the wine. Now usually that's not a problem because you'll put new wine into new wineskins. But what happens when those wineskins get old? And here you've got something new, a fresh batch of new wine that needs to go through the fermentation process. You say you'd be making a terrible mistake if you reach around and grab your old wineskins because it's already gone through the stretching process and it's got no more room to give. And if you put your fresh wine, your new wine into old wineskins, it's going to go through the same process, but there won't be any room for it to expand and the wine, the skin will burst and the wine will be lost and the skins as well. So you got the old thing, old wineskins, you got new wine and you got the disastrous results. The skin's split, the wine spills over the floor, and you don't have anything to drink. The important question, though, if you want to understand what these parables are all about, is coordinating what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about something old, used, and worn out, and what he's talking about when he's talking about things that are all new. And here's what I think. I think that these two parables are Jesus telling the Pharisees the disciples of John, and I'm sure his own disciples who were listening in trying to figure out why they got the burden of fasting lifted off their backs. He was telling them what he came to do was so radical that the well-worn religious practices and postures that were useful and necessary in their own time were going to be replaced by practices and postures that were fit for the new thing he was doing. All right, let me give you that again. Because this is, I think, the crux of the whole deal. Jesus was telling the Pharisees and the disciples of John that the well-worn and used-up religious practices that they considered essential to who they were as God's people were going to be replaced by new practices that were fit for what Jesus was doing in them. That's the point. That fasting made sense in a world marked by sin, death, exile, and longing. But it didn't make sense in a world where Christ had come to proclaim that he was making all things new and he was backing it up with symbols and signs proving his authority. Didn't make sense. To the Pharisees and disciples, they thought that the Messiah would come and he'd descend from heaven, march into Jerusalem, and there he would find them, the faithful remnant, completely committed and devoted and obedient to all that he had ever asked, or otherwise humbling themselves in the dirt, begging him to show up. And then here he was, the Messiah himself. He wasn't proud of their fasting. He didn't give them a gold star and say, hey, I'm so proud of what you guys did and fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. So what you're doing is inappropriate and unseemly. Don't you know I'm here and it's time to party? 
Why are you sitting with sullen faces, relying on the well-worn, used-up ruts of your religiosity? See what I am doing. I am doing something new. They wanted to conform Jesus to their expectations. Y'all ever been guilty of that? You think you know what God's going to do in your life, and so you tell him, hey God, uh, I know you love me, and I've got a wonderful plan for my life. Please bless it and make it so, Lord. That's what they wanted. They wanted him to conform to their expectations and their preconceptions. But he was saying, no, what I'm going to do is conform you to a new way. They should have expected this. You know, as people of the Old Testament, people of the book, surely they had meditated on all God's promises. If you want to, you can look at Isaiah 61 with me. They should have known what God's intention was. They should have known what it would be like when the Messiah would get there, but they had shifted and shaped it into their own desires. Instead, Isaiah saw a day when God's anointed servant would show up and he would announce publicly to everyone, the Spirit of the Lord God's upon me because the Lord's anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Give them a crown. Give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a spirit of feigning. So then they'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They thought maybe Messiah would show up and breathe some new life into their old worn-out stuff. He'd sew a patch on and make it good as new. But what Jesus intended to do was take their stuff, and do away with it, and replace it with the end-time blessings of God, the garment of praise a spirit of heaviness. That's what Jesus does. That's the change that he wants to work. What he's doing is so radical that bringing in the old practices of fasting, of Sabbath observance, bringing all that in unadjusted, unrefracted through the lens of Jesus, unconformed to who he is and what he's doing, risks doing terrible and violent disaster. As the story of the New Testament bears out, I mean, you think about the conflicts that erupt in the church when Gentiles start to be grafted in. You know, they were trying to bring in old practices unadjusted to the new thing that Jesus was doing. And that's what Jesus does. He always does new things. Exchanging the old for the new. And you think about it, we've seen the newness of Jesus' ministry already. In Mark 1, verse 27 Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum, and he teaches. And the people say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So he, he comes in, and, and he's not regurgitating the same old, well-worn cliches that they're used to hearing. He's doing something new and accomplishing it in a new way. You, you think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I hope you know the Sermon on the Mount. I hope that's something that rings a bell for you. If it doesn't, no worries. There was a time when none of us knew it. Look up Matthew 5 through 7 and hear Jesus' teaching. In chapter 6, he contrasts his way with the commonly understood way. He says, you've heard that it was said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies. 
But I tell you, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? He, he takes the common, well-worn cliches of religion and gets people focused on the new thing, the thing that matters, the thing that God would have them see. It was a teaching that was different than the scribes and the Pharisees. Later, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus talks about the newness of his ministry again. And he gathers his disciples around in a place they call the upper room. And they're celebrating something, I mean, it's foundational to who God's people were in the Old Testament, the Passover. And he takes the well-worn, used-up symbols of Passover, and he refracts them through the lens that is him. He reinterprets them in light of who he is and what he's doing. He takes the last cup after the meal, Luke twenty-two twenty. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I mean, 1,500 years God's people have been celebrating the Passover year after year after year, commemorating God's great act of salvation and, deliberating, and delivering and liberating them from Egypt. And here's Jesus doing something new, reinterpreting the well-worn religion through who he is and what he does. The author of the letter to the Hebrews helps us understand what this is all about by quoting from the Old Testament itself. If you want to, you can turn over to Hebrews 8, and I'm, I'm getting close to being done. I'm not there yet. If there's any Eutychuses in the room, wake them up. Don't let them fall asleep and fall on the floor. But turn to Hebrews 8. And, and, he, and hear what the author says in verse 7. He says, if that first covenant, and we sometimes call it the old covenant, that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they didn't continue in my covenant, and I didn't care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they should be my people. And those Pharisees won't have to go around teaching everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They'll all know me from the least, like a little baby, from a three-year-old kid that you wonder in the back of your mind, how are they getting anything out of this? Changes Jesus wants to make mean that from the least to the greatest, the Holy Spirit of God will take the Word of God and write it on the hearts of the people of God. It doesn't matter how old they are or whether they seem to us like they are paying attention or concentrating. The new covenant's different. Not words outside, but they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, for I'll be merciful to their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant... He's made the first obsolete. But whatever's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This is why Jesus didn't come to breathe new life into a corrupt sacrificial system. He came to replace it with a better sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice for everyone who will ever trust in him. Their sins have been forgiven. That's what the Bible tells us over and over and over, that our greatest problem as people is not that we can't seem to affect the change in ourselves that we want, but that before we even get there, we are dead and alienated from the God who made us. 
And left to ourselves, each one of us is destined for the day of judgment when we'll give an account for each and every sinful thing we've done, the things we've thought, and the words we've said. That's our biggest problem. Nobody's righteous. No, not one. Doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee and fast twice a week. Doesn't matter if you're a disciple of John and you wallow in the dirt of your sinfulness. Doesn't matter. None of us is righteous. No, not one. And there's nothing we can do to change it. But Jesus came into a broken world marked by sorrow and grief and sin and death. And he said, I'm doing something new. I'm coming and I'm bringing the kingdom. And I'm going to give my spirit. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Doesn't matter how old you are, what you know, where you've been, what you've done. I'm doing something new. The old patterns of religiosity aren't going to be sufficient to hold you within the bounds of the goodness that I'm about to pour out. That's what he's doing. And then he turns around and lives a sinless life. Dies a death on the cross for anybody who will ever trust in him for their sins. Was raised from the dead, claiming victory over everything. And is seated now at God's right hand. And the Bible says that anybody who calls on him will be saved. That's what the Bible teaches. That's the new covenant that he has enacted in his blood. And because of that covenant... And because of his promise, he doesn't just offer us new teaching and a new covenant, but he offers us new life. And that's where the change really happens. Because Paul says when a person places their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit unites us to him. So that what's true for him and of him becomes true of us and for us. And that Christ now lives a, a life that he'll never die again. He lives it completely and perfectly to God. And by our union with him, symbolized in baptism, just as he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Listen, Jesus fundamentally changes the way people know and worship God. Not as a cruel, vindictive judge, but as the one who would enter into our brokenness, take it on himself, and provide us a way out of us. That way Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Him perfectly taking the old and throwing it away. And behold, a new thing coming. And this morning, he wants to do that for each one of us. You know, maybe you've been where I've been. And you've looked at your life. You've looked at your relationships and your private thoughts that nobody knows but you. And you have just assumed that you are always going to be the way you are. That real change isn't possible. Maybe you can get better, but you'll never be different than what you are right now. But Jesus came so that he could fundamentally change the way you know and worship God. Listen, church, Jesus is not interested in spritzing up our old, worn-out lives. Jesus doesn't do the makeover thing where he comes in and in a weekend, he automatically makes you something you weren't. You're the ugly duckling turned beautiful. That isn't what he wants to do. He wants to take your heart of stone, do away with it, and supernaturally implant a heart of flesh that wants what he wants, that dies to an old way of living and is raised to live 100% for him. He wants to give you life 
where when you look around, all you know is death. To give you peace for anxiety, joy for sorrow. This is, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, died, resurrected. This is his desire for each person here today to take your aimlessness and give you purpose, to take your sin, your, your guilt, your shame, and make you totally new. Would you experience that change this morning? Who could use a little change in their life? Let me just see your hands. Come on, me too. I think we all could use a little change. And Jesus said, I'm here to do it. I'm here to take your old wineskins and give you something new that can hold what I'm about to do in your life. Take the way of relating to your spouse, the way of responding to your kids, the way of dealing with your boss. I want to make you new. I want to give you my spirit to help you walk in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in gentleness, in self-control. This is who Jesus wants us to be. Will you receive the change? Will you let him work in you to make you new? The times are changing. And it's my personal conviction, Brad Mills, that our old way of doing things is no longer fit to what God is doing in the world. What we're going to have to do as the people of God is once again go back to the place where we were. Eight years old, six years old, 14 years old, 16 years old. When we first heard the call of Jesus raised our hand and walked an aisle. we got to go back to that place and say, Lord, the cherished pieces of my religious identity are yours. Take what's old, used up, worn out about my relationship with you. Meet me in my rut and in my routine and make me new. That's my prayer for you, church. That's my prayer for Central Baptist Church that we would always be open and receptive to what God is doing in the moment. Will you pray with me?